I, I just want to welcome you to the Tree Actions podcast, where we tree people talk about their reactions to growing up in the human forest. And uh, I've, I've started thinking about, you know, the human forest as something we all live in. And, you know, I, I think trees are really amazing examples of how, you know, kind of how to live almost. And, you know, you're already talking about it. I, I've, I've, I've had only recently I was talking to a friend who's in Portugal and she was trying to understand exactly what arboriculture is or an arborist does. And, you know, it, 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 it always comes down to the, the, you know, I said, it's really like being a doctor kind of, because every tree's different, even if, you know, it doesn't matter if it's plant healthcare or if it's a removal, uh, you know, you gotta, there's nuances and things you got to figure out along the way, you know, certain things about species and stuff are, are similar, but I've yet to, to meet a tree that isn't different than the other, even though they're the same species, you know? And, uh, so, uh, you know, um, you're, you have such a rich past, Don. We're so excited to have you. Uh, you know, I know that we very likely are going to end up having to do a, a sequel or, a, or another because I don't know that we're going to have time to, to get to all the possible things we could talk about. But maybe, um, you know, how do you, you – know, how did uh, – well, you know what? I'm going to – you know, your, your, your background goes back so far – how do you feel trees have, you know, affected you in your life in general? Well, <clears throat> I don't know what I'd do without them. Uh, I'd have to be working in a coal mine or something. Uh, and even coal comes from trees. Right. But, uh, you know, having grown up in the profession, uh I think it helps to put my life in context by honoring my father a little bit. He was born in Minnesota in 1893. He went to um, the University of uh, uh, Minnesota at the St. Paul campus, which was the agricultural school, and said, I'd like to learn to be an arborist. And they didn't have – and he probably called it tree surgeon right. back then uh, – but uh, they didn't have a specific course, but they said, we can take care of you. Uh, they had him take botany, entomology, and plant pathology. He uh, had to take blacksmithing to make some tools and hardware wow. that didn't exist so he could do some cabling and some cavity work. He trimmed these huge elm trees on campus for credit. So he he went to college in uh 1911 and uh i don't i don't know when he graduated but he went uh basically right into world war one and his mos was the chemical warfare service so poison gas was his job and uh he said he thought that he might learn something about pest control what he learned was that mustard gas is not very good for uh clients uh oakworms <laughs> You know, so we had to use other things. But he he got back out to California a few years after the war and started the M.F. Blair Tree Experts in 1922. So that's the world I grew up in. And ever the professional, my dad founded the California Arborists Association, 
which started out as the Bay County Tree Surgeons and Pest Control Operators Association. Now, try and put that on a letterhead. So it wasn't too long after that that they changed it to the California Arborists Association. Right. <laughs> but he he was instrumental in drawing the uh, arborists in the San Francisco Bay Area uh, together. And they met monthly and uh, would um, uh, have speakers and they would discuss what the upcoming problems were. And the industry was changing so much at the time that I'm sure they were talking about what uh, spray chemicals and things like that were uh, uh, available to, to solve certain problems. Pest control was so primitive in his early days that they didn't even have a uh, spray oil. Uh, they used to use ammonia to break uh, motor oil down to an emulsifiable spreader. And then a fellow named Volk, V-O-L-C-K, developed Volk spray oil. And that's um, from that point on in the mid-20s, they they had uh, uh, that to work with instead of, you know, I'm sure they talked about what ammonia and what motor oil did the best job. <laughs> so would that be the uh, precursor uh, to dormant oil, Don? And, uh, yeah, yes. That and also um, uh, using yeah. it on scale, uh, treating uh, – you. we used uh, oil a lot with, with scale. Uh, and uh, it would be used with uh, – uh, Bordeaux mix and, and, and some other things. So he founded the, the California Arborists, and then not too long after that, he published Practical Tree Surgery, which was unique in that it dealt with the uh, insects and diseases and conditions of trees on the West Coast, uh, where Perone okay. dealt with the East Coast. So his book was used as a standard text in the, the, uh, the schools that taught forestry and arboriculture related uh, topics uh, up and down the up and down the the the, the west coast uh, California Oregon and Washington and uh, then uh, they 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 preceded the western chapter of the ISA uh, and the CAA was always smaller but they provided a lot of leadership to the Western, to the Western chapter. Uh, so their Western chapter this year is going to be celebrating their 80th wow. anniversary. Yeah. yeah. And it's a pretty vibrant chapter to this day. You know, so did, uh, where did the, uh, like, was it you that started into the more of the manufacturing side of things or your dad obviously was a blacksmith. He built stuff too. So that's in your blood as far as designing and building things? Yes, but uh, he, uh, uh, the, the sort of things that he innovated for the, uh, for the, for our tree work was uh, the wow. spray rigs. He worked with uh, some uh, engineers to create uh, spray, spray rigs that had two tanks. And you could pump out of one or the other. And before he came along with that innovation, all the spray rigs were one tank. And you sprayed that out. 
and then you had to wait for it to fill. And then if you were changing chemicals, you might even have to flush the, uh, the tank and the hoses. So uh, he had one machine that was two 200-gallon tanks, and you could pump from one to the other. And the very first one he did was on a 41 Dodge uh, truck chassis, which he bought in 1946 or 7. It was uh, basically surplus from World War II. And that one had two 400-gallon tanks. And he called one of the tanks a nurse tank because they could pump that uh, tank into the one that they could spray out of. So they had one 400-gallon tank that they could use uh, to put out the chemicals. And then they could pump that other 400-gallon tank into it and keep going. So that was the first innovation. Then the second one was they got more sophisticated with their plumbing. And the one I used, I could pump out of one one or the other. His uh, uh, brush truck... Uh, because we're talking about before chippers, had the most unusual dump mechanism I've ever seen in my life. It was a hand crank winch uh, made by Ramsey. And uh, he had seen an awful lot of his competitors and friends with busted hydraulic hoses and, and, uh, and things that just weren't working. And in all the years we used that truck, it never once failed us. But it was a hand crank cable lifting mechanism that um, would raise the it would raise the dump bed up about wow. that high, and it just absolutely never failed. He could also unhook the cable, run it through a pulley that they had uh, mounted flush with the bed, and they could uh, either with a ramp or tilt the bed some. They could use it to winch logs wow. onto the truck. Now I never I never worked with that aspect of it, but I know that they they had that option, and I'm sure they did before my time. Interesting. Uh, but I'm I saw that we were using the same tools uh, in 1967 that uh, my dad was using 50 years earlier, and I just thought that maybe things could be better. But I didn't start to really get to work on making things until 1975. And that's when I founded the Sierra Moreno Mercantile. What, what do you think was your, you know, or some of your crowning achievements in, in developing with Sierra Moreno? Well, tree saddles for yeah. one. Uh, I was the very first to to uh, uh, put out a, a wide back saddle and they're all, they're all wide backs. Now I was the first one to do a modular system to where you could uh, change the lower assembly. Uh, you could mix and match sizes if you yeah. were in between something and we're still, we're yeah. still doing that. Um, I worked with Ed Hobbs. If uh, he, Ed, Ed invented the original lowering device but he was interested in doing the work and he didn't have time to market. So he built them and I sold them. It was a perfect uh, relationship and I'll have to take credit for 
making Ed's invention yep. pretty famous. And then once I bought the patent rights to it, I was able to uh, uh, put more improvements into it. And then Ken Johnson came along with his patent on an angled frame. And we put the two of them together, and we've got a pretty darn good yeah. machine now. Uh, but lots of little things. Uh, believe it or not, I invented the uh, the cammed uh, lanyard adjuster. I saw somebody using a micro adjuster from Rock Exotica, but it had a, a spring-loaded pin to release the cam. And I could just see some board guy up in a tree going, I wonder what this pin does <laughs> and pulling on it and falling out of the tree. So I thought that it would be better to have a bolt. I also wanted to see how strong it was. So I took it to Bashland and we drop tested it and it f blew apart at around 3,800 pounds, which is probably strong enough, but the 5,000 is right. the magic number. So I flew out to Utah and met with rock and showed him what I wanted. And he was doing CNC machining then. And this was in the 80s uh, that uh, he was able to make a lanyard adjuster that met all the right specifications. And since then, it's been copied by everybody. Uh, some good, some not so good. Uh, I made fiberglass pruning tools popular on the west coast before we used wood poles and believe it or not aluminum right you just had to make sure you weren't near any power lines <laughs> yeah. with an aluminum pole saw for sure wow uh, you know i remember my like first what i would consider modern real harness was uh what you know where where did stringer fit into that don like because i remember my harness said oh stringer was the man okay yeah, it's it stringer. stringer on the back, and but it was it was a it was a Sierra Merino harness or saddle, but it, uh, yeah, okay. Well, I yeah, uh, Dwayne, I could dream them up, okay. I couldn't make them. So uh, after the uh, St. Louis uh, ISA meeting in '76, and that was where we had the very first tree trimmers jamboree wow. for the ISA. And I was there and I had a friend on the other side of Missouri near Kansas city who uh, was going to be moving back to California and she needed some help. And I had already had contact with uh, the Stringer company, which was also utilities safety supply out of Lee summit, Missouri, which is a suburb of Kansas city. And I called her up to see if she'd like to come to the banquet. And I didn't really look at a map, so I didn't realize she was way to hell other on the complete other side of Missouri. So she said that wasn't going to be practical. And that's when I found out she was moving. So I said, well, look, I'll, if I fly into um, Kansas City, can you pick me up there? She said, sure. So she did. And she took me to Utility Safety Supply, which was owned by Freeman Stringer and his uh, son, Dean. And Dean's original background had been jazz music. He taught jazz at San Jose State University, California. But as his dad got older, then he needed help. And I met Freeman in the last 
couple of years of his life, and Dean took over the business. So the two of them were the same entity under the same roof. He had uh, Stringer and Utility okay. Safety Supply. Uh, they made the they made the Brooks Climber. They bought the the rights to the original Brooks Climber, and they were manufacturing okay. them. Uh, but he had an employee named Dolores. Uh, well, we'll go with that for now. Uh, Parker, Dolores Parker. She made every saddle and lineman's belt that the company sold over a 55-year period. She made every belt that we ever sold. And uh, I could come to her and with my hands say, I want it to look like this and I want it to do that. Yeah. And she could do it. She, she hit it out of the park every time I brought her an idea. So we started with the uh, uh, what I called the utility saddle because it was for utility tree service, uh, separate leg straps, floating D, and a three-inch wide back because that was the standard, yeah. three inches. And they ate it up because uh, that replaced a rope-strung saddle. And then uh, I brought out one that was a seat saddle with a floating D. And, of course a standard uh, butt strap saddle with, with two separated Ds that came together, the kind that a lot of people like to spreader snap yeah. on. And we went from three inch to four inch. And one of my employees had been a lineman for Pacific Gas and Electric. And he said, hey, Don, I really liked the wide back on the lineman's belts. Is there any way you could do that on a saddle? So I flew back to... Uh, Kansas City and met with Dolores and we came up with the modular idea and that was the genesis of what yeah, we're still yeah. doing. Uh, I listened to people who tell me what they wanted and if it was possible to do, we'd, we'd figure out a way to get it done. Hey, Don, where do you think that, you know, as far, I know recently you just spoke on the history of climbing and, and uh, I, I was fascinated by that and I'm really curious I know that that's a whole topic in and of itself, but like even the floating, I remember the floating D ring, you know, uh, where I could, you know, where it would slide along the, the bridge, if you will, you know, that was, that was pretty innovative. Was that already in existence or was that part of that whole process? And then, you know, the evolution now into, you know, you, you talk about a rope harness, you know, and now we've got some of the most popular harnesses actually having a rope as a bridge. <laughs> you know, it... yeah. Every there's nothing new. There's there's nothing new. My first saddle, which is in England right now, I'm going to have to get Jeremy Barrel to send it back. Uh, it was all hand spliced out of three quarter inch uh, Manila, and the fellow that made it was the type that could take and do a splice. He could bring two ends together and splice it up so that you couldn't tell where it right. started. It was just a beautiful butt splice. And it had separate leg straps and a rope floating bridge. And it was all made from one length of rope. 
It was all made from one piece of rope. And there was a snap that was either livestock or horse or something like that. But instead of a, 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 a an eye that was the same thickness as the body of the snap, which is what most of them are, this one had a, a big thimble uh, forged right into it that was about yeah yeah i've seen those yeah that wide and the rope the rope ran through it and that was that was a very popular homemade design i don't even know how far back it goes but i was in germany in 2018 and i brought that with me cuz they uh mark bridge wanted me to speak specifically to my contributions to the evolution of tree saddles and I wanted to be able to show where it started from. So I brought that and I said, you guys all think that a rope bridge saddle is something new. Here's one that's 80 years old. (laughs) And uh, a couple of fellows came up to me after I spoke and said, boy, you sure have one dealer who's upset. He he's been bragging to everybody for a few years now that he invented the rope bridge saddle. (laughs) So we all we all went and gave him a bunch of shit over um, not uh, not yeah, having yeah, invented yeah. it. And I don't personally, I don't like them. And I've seen enough videos on uh, uh, YouTube, uh, uh, Facebook, and and YouTube to uh, ver to kind of justify my concern. I call it the frayed right. shoelace, uh, where. Uh, some of the some in the earliest days of the the American made ones, there were some splices failing, but everybody's had a frayed shoelace, and you look at it in the morning, you go, you know, I really should replace this, but it didn't break yet, and you might go a long time with that frayed shoelace before it finally breaks. That's yeah. human nature. The uh, the the bridge that we use, and with the most popular design the separate leg straps with and we added two floating d's so you could use a split tail with it or have a a double crotch it just it didn't cost much more to add two d rings while we're at it but uh from one end to the other from the left leg strap right through the bridge to the end of the right leg strap that's all one piece of webbing when it gets to the bridge it's doubled and then it's put inside that uh, tubular webbing. So the tubular webbing is a chafing sleeve, which completely eliminates any wear at all on the structural component. So we've been able to eliminate the frayed shoelace. And in all these years and all these thousands of saddles, I've only seen one where somebody had worn it down enough to where they cut it off. And didn't use the didn't use the black chafing sleeve, but I was fascinated to inspect the bridge, and there wasn't a single stitch broken. Uh, I said, "How long ago did you do this?" And he said, "Oh, about five years ago." <laughs> and he said, "I got this from you thirty years ago." And I, he said, "I was thinking maybe it's yeah. time to replace it." So uh, he did. Yeah, I got I got mine. He, mm-hmm. Have you ever heard of oh, the yeah. geezer's yeah, yeah. time? 
Well, he was on his way. He was on his way to the geezer climb, and he wasn't sure that belt would pass inspection. <laughs> so he thought he'd bring a new one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'd be a good place to yeah. go, Tony, for some uh, face to oh, face. Yeah. We should make mm-hmm. a cameo appearance to mm-hmm. the geezers. It is. It is funny how like innovations like that rope bridge saddle they get introduced and then. It, it somehow the like the original intent of it gets lost because I can't tell you how many times I've looked at a saddle and everything from competitions to just working on it. And you ask, hey, you know, what, what's the best advantage of having a rope bridge sad- on your saddle? And they're like, oh, you can replace it so easy. And then you look at it, go, when's the last time you replaced it? And they're like, oh, no. I'm like, I, I look at that thing <laughs> exactly. like you should never look at the bridge of your saddle and go, hmm. Like the moment you go, hmm. It's, it's time. It's like, it's absolutely time. Like right then. And, and it's like, and you, you know, those things, you can change them. So there's two ways to go around it, right? You either do what you just described, which is essentially a bridge that's about indestructible under normal operation, or you change that rope bridge constantly, right? You change it constantly. And, and I think where a lot of guys and girls yeah. that are climbing miss the, miss the boat is they replace it with whatever they have on hand. Right. And it might not be the best material. Yeah, and it's probably the yeah, worst material ever, which is a strong <laughs> argument for a harness that has a bridge that is just it's there and it's not going anywhere and until and it'll be good yeah. till you retire the saddle yeah. because you want a different color one. Well, you know, that's an interesting point. One of the pro- one of my concerns too about the rope bridge as opposed to the way we do it is I've always wanted my center of gravity to be in close. So the bridge is close in. And I, I see these, these rope bridges, like they, they come up past yeah. your chest. And it, it's got to be very easy to flip upside down if you lose your balance. And I've seen that on Facebook to where they're showing off and doing it on purpose or doing a, a, a backflip out of the tree mm-hmm. because they can do it. But I don't. I'm not an acrobat. I'm an arborist who climbed. The reason why I climb trees is that's where the work is. I'm not an adrenaline junkie. I don't do it for the thrill. I do it because that's what I do for a living. And if I'm going to do tree work, I got to get in the tree. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what is it? Do you think about, you know, you, you both have made reference to it as far as this. It's, I don't know if it's safe to call it a culture, but you know, you know, we wear a chain, uh, it's common in the industry uh, from trucks to chainsaw pants, like to harnesses, to rope, like it, just when it gets comfortable, it's probably time to replace it. And that's just when you start really liking it and use it well past. And I'm guilty of it myself. Like I've been guilty of it. Uh, like, what is it? Is that, you know, what is it about the industry that's sort of like that? Is there, I'm curious what your thoughts would be on that. Or do you, do you know what I mean? It's called, I know exactly what you mean. And that's okay. called human nature. That That's, that's not because of being an arborist. That's because of being a human. Sometimes it's because they're cheap. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I paid. And the other thing I can't believe is how expensive some of these saddles yeah. cost and how quickly yeah. they wear out. To this day, our um, our modular saddles are three hundred and thirty seven dollars, and they last longer and, in my opinion, work better than six and seven hundred dollar saddles. And I I come from, you know, 
I just turned 70 on January 11th. So uh, I come from two generations back from these guys. Uh, And you go back a long ways, uh, Dwayne, and I don't know you as well, Tony, but if you've been at it for more than 20 years, a lot of the stuff that we've got now wasn't even a uh, wasn't even a twinkle in nope. somebody's eye. Uh, and I can't believe the amount of stuff that people carry up a tree. They've been doing this now ever since the Cheryl catalog came out. <laughs> but I've always told people as, uh, uh, you know, a head judge of the, the, the event formerly known as the Tree Trimmers Jamboree, that I don't care how much you bring to the job. You drive a two-ton truck. But I'm more impressed if you come up with a work plan and you only yeah. take what you need and you right. use what you take. I've seen some I've I've seen a number of people carrying so much stuff. I've said, "Can I ask you a question without insulting you? Do you work alone and are you and are you clumsy?" And they're looking at me. So, why would you ask that? And I said, "You've got three and four of the same damn beaner." If you worked with somebody on the ground and you dropped it, they could tie it back on for you. But since there's nobody on the ground, if you're working alone, you don't want to go back down to the ground and pick it up and go back up again. So you must be carrying (laughs) spares. Yeah. They generally the the joke goes over their heads because, you know, they take shit seriously. Yeah, uh, that's probably. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But you've seen it, right? Yep, you know yep. exactly what I'm talking about. I think, and there's also a I bit might of a need this. attitude, especially among climbers, where um, somehow if it's newer, it's better, um, whether it's better or not, and that somehow more is more. So if you can make it more complex, it somehow much be better. And it's not true across the board. I think, I think what happens is <laughs> is guys and girls get into the field and they're excited by the technicality of it and all the gear and the shininess and the good ones get past that and then carry up in the tree what they want. And, and I've, I agree with you a hundred percent. The other thing that, uh, our colleague in common, John Ball is finding is he's starting to take surveys when he gives talks and, you know, he's probably still the busiest man on the circuit. He says, how many of you are, using akimbos and zigzags and whatever else. And how many are using a Blake's hitch? And he says 80 to 90% of the people that he polls every time all over the country, they're still climbing on Blake's hitches. And he said, I'm beginning to get concerned that the ISA is catering to a very small elite percentage of people and ignoring how the work is really being done. And I'm inclined to, uh, I'm inclined to agree with that because all the three of us need it. And all the, all the three of us would need today would be a climbing line of suitable length. I like steel snaps because when you go to throw a flip line around, it goes, it's got a little extra weight to it. And I used to climb some really big trees. And one of the best things about a shot pouch is if you put it on that snap, when you've got to throw eight and 10 feet around a trunk, Mm -hmm. it helps it go even further. Um, But we needed, all we need is a good lanyard 
and a climbing line, a couple of snaps, and a handsaw and a chainsaw, hard hat, safety glasses, appropriate hearing protection, and you can get an awful lot of work done. And you can get up there a whole lot quicker than uh, somebody that can't figure out which mechanical friction thing they want to use. And I, I discovered Facebook at over Thanksgiving. I'd ignored it studiously, and now I fell down the rabbit hole, and it's hard to climb <laughs> out sometimes. I didn't realize that there were so many special yeah. interest groups that interest me. <laughs> Chainsaw collectors. Yes. And then, then you've got specialty, you've got home light chain cl- chainsaw collectors as a Facebook group. Yeah. You've got McCullough. Yeah. <laughs> and then you've got, they'll get anything they, they can get their hands on. I collect military vehicles, so it's kind of nice to know about that group. But there is an abundance of tree-related to- uh, Facebook pages. Uh, and they all call themselves, like, when somebody calls themselves a tree bastards, that tells me that they don't have a whole lot of pride in what they do. Another one is tree tards. That doesn't uh, inspire a lot of confidence in their sense of professionalism. But, uh, you know, there's a tree climbers one. And there's a whole culture of climbers that I've had no contact with. And I think a lot of these guys are, they allude to being drug addicts, and I wouldn't be surprised. The, the contract mm-hmm. climber, which I, you know, we, we had our own employees. And if we needed more help, we would team up with another complete tree company. Sam Noonan and I did an awful lot of great jobs together. And when the big job was done, we went our separate ways. But these guys apparently work out of a van and for ridiculous amounts of money, they go from one job site to another. And anybody that's showing a fan of $100 bills and bragging about, well, that's what I got for today's work. Wonder where the meth dealer is. Um, you know, it's a culture that I don't, I don't understand it, but, uh, they, uh, are addicted to the newest and the shiniest. And they make fun of people that are using a Blake's hitch. So it's, it's, it's an interesting divide. You know what's interesting, Don? That if it weren't for Facebook, I would, you know, what's interesting and, 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 you know, you're touched on uh, some pretty, uh, uh, relevant things that, you know, we deal with within our training company. And, you know, we just recently had an event and Tony's part of our organization, but, uh, you know, it's it's so easy these days to have a voice or to say what you want to say or to to hold a, a fan of hundreds out and and so many people can see it. You know, and I I I don't know that what we see so readily available online, whether it be Facebook or Instagram and all the rest, is necessarily a strong representation of really what's going on out there. You know, I think, I think it's a, it's a, it's, it's a small percentage of the actual people actually doing the work. They don't have time for Facebook or Instagram. They're not on there. They're not doing that. And uh, the ones that are the ones that, you know, 
for one reason or another. I think some of them are actually interested in trying to teach people things or show people new things, or it's just a they're interested in not just arboriculture, but the technology of sharing what they're learning, you know, and and it's really hard to sift through that and to decipher what's what, you know, uh, it, it and it's so easy to put yourself out there, so to speak. Uh, but I, I would agree with the yeah. I couldn't and agree the more. Arborist, you know, I, I I mean I've I've had my heyday with Facebook. I I have an account and I used it. I used it a lot more than I think I should have, and I've had to go through like a kind of had to wean myself off, so to speak, and, and use it more responsibly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Detox. But, but it's, uh, you know, I think everyone has to, but if I was in production tree work, I don't know how active I would be on it. I don't know. Tony, what do you, I got to, he touches on some pretty modern things there that yeah. are part of our culture now as well. It, it's, I have a lot of mixed feelings as a trainer around the whole social media thing, because in Twain, you and I have had this conversation when, and Don, you've probably experienced it too. When you step into a room to do a talk or a training course, there's YouTube, the silent partners there, because people will literally look up what you're talking about. And if they find a contrary opinion on, on Facebook they'll, or, you know, YouTube, they'll throw it in your face, regardless of where it came from. And, uh, you know, it's like everything seems if it's the old, if it was in the newspaper, it must be true. And that used to be, at least it was verifiable. Now, if it's on YouTube, it must be true. Yeah. Go ahead. And even worse, than, even worse than that, John Ball has told me he's had this experience several times to where he's on a program and he sits in on the program coming up before him. So he's in the room and somebody is, has filmed his talk somewhere else at some other time on a phone and they're presenting it as yeah. their material. They don't even give him credit for stealing. <laughs> and that just goes too far. And he says he's sick to death of people coming up saying, that was a great presentation. Do you mind if I, if, if will you give me the stick yeah, so I don't have to do yeah, all this yeah, on my yeah. own? <laughs> and uh, no, I absolutely uh, agree with that totally, especially what you were saying, Dwayne, about the small percentage of squeaky wheels. Uh, yeah. Uh, but it's been very in instructive to me to see the number of fa failures. And I get a huge kick out of watching tree work in the third world where you've got somebody barefoot with, without anything, maybe he'll throw a short rope around a trunk and hold onto it with one hand well, he uses a Homelite yeah, XL12 yeah. <laughs> you know, to dismantle something that's 90 feet in the air. But the the it it's almost like there's a script that the gang that we're talking about, every last video that I've seen is almost to the same specification. Up 50, 60, 70 feet, you got a GoPro on your on your helmet, and you're on six or eight inch diameter wood and you're piecing that one out big deal that's not that's not what impresses me and yet that's what they continue i've seen it maybe a hundred times i could care less about what you're doing where the wood is small show me what you can do yeah, with bigger yeah. wood 
But everyone seems to be, well, this is, I could show how high up I am. <laughs> Big deal. The other thing is you almost never see anybody who's not wearing spurs. They almost all of them on Facebook wear spurs. And most of them are showing yeah. off removals. Uh, and if you go to, I think it's called Tree Climbers, there's a fellow that is very honest and open about his injury. And it is something that you'll never forget. He got spiked in the groin by Ooh. another climber. He was teaching a ground. He was teaching a man how to use spurs. And he had come down out of the tree and they were on the ground together. And this guy that got hurts like the foreman or the trainer and the tree starts to go the wrong way. Well, they're both backing up watching as they backing up. Well, the fellow that got hurt tripped over a chainsaw that yeah. was, you know, behind him. He tripped over the saw. So he fell. The other guy tripped over him and jammed a, two and three quarter inch spur right, right in his groin as high up as you can go and nicked his femoral artery said it took the paramedics two hours to, or doctors two hours to stop the bleeding. And he showed pictures of the wound and it's a gigantic three corner tear, just like what you'd see if you were to spike in a, in a tree into yeah. deep uh, bark. Uh, and he's, He's uh, he's battling sept. He's trying to avoid sepsis now with antibiotics. He's still in the hospital. Uh, it's just a hideous wound, but it's something that makes one heck of a learning experience. <laughs> but there's so many people wearing spurs in all these videos, and yeah, I'm good on them. But I the, I made yeah. more money without them. I did better work without them because we were pruning trees. The trees that my dad had worked in 50 years before I was in them. So it was, uh, I'm not impressed with people that do nothing but work off of spurs. They're not arborists. Well, certainly with the, yeah, as far as pruning goes, absolutely. It's a, yeah, it's another tool, right? Like I, I was, it's interesting you talk about spurs because they just so happened the company that I learned and first started working at, they, they, they were very, you know, they had, the, the the guy that started the division had, had was just in love with Shigo and I guess fair to call him a Shigo white. And he just said spurs hurt trees and we just didn't have them. I had no, I'd worked two or three years and I went to another company and they couldn't believe that I had never seen a set of spurs. I never, for removals, anything, we just simply didn't have them. So I, I was, I, I consider myself quite lucky because I, I never learned to climb on spurs ever. It was something I learned much later, like three years into my career, first I ever put a set on. And I could see their advantages, but I still found I felt more comfortable without them, you know, even in a removal. Well, I'm, I'm with you. Um, I'm with you. And we used to joke about um, having to detox climbers that came from <laughs> other companies. And we joked about having rubber gaffs on a set of spurs so that they'd feel comfortable with the spike with the iron, but they had rubber spikes so they couldn't hurt anything. <laughs> we joked a lot about that. We never did it, but uh, uh, I did. Th th one fellow said, "Can't I wear spurs?" And I said, "Yeah, if you take the gaffs off, you can wear the iron. That's fine." 
but uh, you'd be better off yeah, to learn how yeah, to work yeah. without them. Well, uh, um, one one thing I was curious about, Don, is the uh, uh, the the transition from, uh, I guess, what we we you know started uh, slang calling the split tail, like you know, like that. Like how exactly like that was that it seems to me that that was kind of uh, the start of the uh, the climbing revolution, if you will. You know, when that innovation, when we when we when we took the tail off that bowling or clovitch or whatever you were using and tied it separately, like it seems like a lot changed in that time period. You know, the pulley under the knot, the the then the rope changing to being a shorter rope and an eye and eye and you know all of that is that like i'm just curious what your thoughts are on that as far as because it seems like to me before that there was there was innovation but it was not to the massive degree that it is now well you're abs you're absolutely right um and I'll, we'll get to why i think there's so much innovation now but the first time I saw a, a split tail system was in Australia in 1986. Okay. And they used a, um, an yeah. endless loop, a uh, three-strand, to yeah. tie a prussic into their climbing line. And then they clipped that to their saddle. So that was the genesis of it. And it was... Um, I can't remember if they called it a closed type of system or an open system, but it was it was something that had come to Australia from England because a lot of the climbers in Australia, even to this day, they come over from England. Uh, they either went through uh, Marestwood College or uh, uh, one of the other <clears throat> one of the other schools that uh, that that teach arboriculture, and they have their licenses and. Being in Canada, you know, it's pretty easy to move from the through right. the Commonwealths uh, as opposed to an American. Um, but Ken Johnson was the very first climber that I knew on the West Coast, which was California, to take and cut his uh, uh, Blake, Blake Sitch free from his climbing line. So that because before we left, you know, maybe a yeah. five or six foot tail. It took your climbing line, tied a bowling into your snap, and then left a five or six foot tail. We always tied a figure eight yeah. in the middle, in between the climbing line, between the snap and where we'd tie a hitch. Uh, and then uh, you tied your hitch, and then you put a figure eight okay. in the tail of that. And on a manila rope, the... Uh, a taut line hitch worked great. It was good for a hundred years. But when the uh, the braided ropes in particular came out, yeah. it would creep, and you had to put a figure eight in there, or you'd you'd find it coming apart on yeah. a long rappel down. Uh, and that's uh, when uh, the Blake's hitch came along, and believe it or not, I named okay. it. Jason Blake called me, and it was early 80s, mid-80s. Jason Blake called me, and he said, Don, I've come up with this climbing hitch, which works well with braided ropes. And 
I'd like to make a video. It'll be about eight or 10 minutes and I want to get $40 for it. How many do you think I can sell? And I said, you'd be lucky to sell three. One on the West Coast, one on the East Coast, and one in Kansas City. Because the word's going to, the, the word will get out like wildfire. I said, if I were you, I'd go for fame, not fortune, because you're not going to make any <laughs> fortune. And I said, what do you call this thing? And he said, the slip or slide knot. But he said, if you tie it wrong, it's the suicide knot. And I said, well, that's all very cute. But if I were you, I'd call it Blake's Hitch. That'll make you famous. That'll outlive you. Uh, and that's how it got the yeah. name Blake's Hitch. And I don't know if you remember, Don, I was... And, and, it was and, just... And, you know, getting back to your comment earlier about nothing is new. You know, I was doing a seminar in Vancouver Island. It would have been in the late 90s, I guess. Uh it would have been around, yeah, I would have to say, wait a minute. Yeah, no, that's, what is it? It might have been early 2000s. Anyway, a guy came. He was an older gentleman. He'd been in the business a long time. And he was, he specifically said, I want to learn this new hitch. I want to learn the Blake's hitch. And I said, okay, no problem. I said, well, why don't you tie me what you're using just to see what he was, what he was on. I'm assuming he's going to tie a taut line. And he ties a Blake's hitch. And, uh, you know, I kind of chuckled at him. I said, well, you, you know, you already, someone already told you or showed you. And he's, he said, no, this is what I've been climbing on for 30 years. You know, he'd been climbing on it since the seventies. And I was like, how the heck? Cause I, it, everywhere I went, it was something new. It was Blake's hitch. Right. And here it is. And this, it wasn't a joke, you know, he, he, he'd been using it. So he, there he is showing me the exact same hitch. And so clearly, you know, um, it's interesting. I, I have a theory and I'm, I, I'm guessing we're, this might take us down a bit of a rabbit hole, but I think it's worth going. And I'm really curious of your thoughts on this. You know, it seems to me that the history of climbing and arbor culture must have its roots in shipbuilding going all the way back to the people that built the boats, because where did they get that wood for the masts? And then not only that, the rigging of the boat, you got to climb up and down and move sideways along the, like to rig a galleon and to build a galleon. You had to be a tree guy to get the wood in there somehow, or there must've been some connection because it was ropes. So you didn't, surely they didn't just drop the log that they built the mast out of on the ground. They must've done some lowering and then lifting them in place and installing them and then rigging the sails like they had to have been using all manner of hitches and finding ones that slid the best and moved the best and is that like have you ever heard any connection to that at all absolutely have you ever heard uh, of the yes, ashley sir. book of knots yeah. well look at all of the different knots that are in there and hitches and splices yeah. the clifford ashley documented and he had them documented by uh, profession and the other um, the other one is the riggers yes. apprentice now the interesting thing my connection to the riggers apprentice is the artist uh, that drew the pictures Robert Shutterly I bought the riggers apprentice about the time I was thinking about writing arborist equipment and I was so impressed with the illustrations I said you know what 
I'd like to have somebody like this guy draw these pictures. And I said, well, why not get a hold of him? So I did, and I happened to catch him in between projects. And he did all of the illustrations in Arborist Equipment. And the reason why he was so good at drawing ropes and the detailed and fiber, he was an Audubon illustrator. He could draw feathers with a pencil. And it was, it was, he, he came down from Maine and spent a few days here uh, at the, here uh, in Angerstown at the farm and to look over his shoulder and watch him with a blank sheet of white paper and a pencil and create a vision uh, was just incredible. I admire other people's talents because I, my talents are limited. They're good at what I do, but I'm not much of a musician and I can't draw a straight line without a ruler. <laughs> so I admire that kind of, that kind of skill. But to go back to your, your question, uh, your, your statement there, everything evolves. Uh, and the, uh, when, the, when the crown was staking out the original 13 colonies, one of the first things they did was send their, their master shipwrights here to go from Maine to the Carolinas to survey the forests and the trees. And they, they marked off huge tracks of, of, uh, of trees. The, uh, the live oaks, the Virginianas with their, uh, branches that, that had huge buttresses in them made perfect knees and uh, ribs for the for the ships the white pines of maine right. made the masts the uh, turpentine that they could get out of the um, out of the pines in the south all of that was as important to the military in the 16 and 1700s as uh, you know nuclear power is now uh, so that was just essential to keeping the, the British Navy on the, on the water. The Spanish used everything they had to invade England with the Spanish Armada. They used up the last of their, of their good trees for making an Armada. And when it failed, when the Armada was hit with a storm and they, they went up on the rocks and they sank, that was the end of Spain as a sea power. They'd used up the trees. They couldn't rebuild. And these are really fascinating little bits of history. It, it could well be that your, uh, your man there on that island had tried to tie a top line yeah, hitch absolutely. years ago and got it wrong and came up, with the, came up with, with Blake's hitch purely by accident. I don't believe that, that Jason invented a knot that had never been used before. Obviously, he hadn't. But he right. rediscovered something right. that had been forgotten yeah. in our profession. So I'll give oh, you credit yeah. for discovering it, but he didn't invent it. It just got yeah. rediscovered. Well, and, and this guy told me that uh, Steeplejack, the older Steeplejack, showed him the knot, the hitch. That makes yeah. all the sense That's in where the world. He, and, and that he, makes all the sense in the world in a nationally yeah, And he called it, he said he was told it was called a painter's hitch. 
that that's probably <laughs> what it was. Uh, remember when uh, when Ron Denise was running around yeah, as the yeah, master yeah. rigger, and uh, fortunately his flame burned out quick. But he was he was teaching what he called Correct. a Stilson hitch. Well, yes, it it's is. a cow hitch. I found That's it right. in Ashley's. And I said, where did you come up with Stilson? He goes, well, the guy that taught it to me, his yeah. name was Stilson. <laughs> so I call it Stilson's Hitch. And that's how that's how knots and hitches yeah. got their names. But there was already a name, the cow hitch. And I made darn sure that the industry knew what the real name was. I said, if it's in Ashley and it's got a name, that's what we're going to use because yeah. then you have a reference. If you forget how to do it there, because if you go looking for Stilson's hitch, you're not going to find it. Yeah, no, I agree. That's a pretty, it's still, I think, you know, Tony, we pretty much consider it the gold standard. Oh, yeah, the Ashley Book of Knots is that that reference to Bible of Knots. Don, you said something earlier about why we have so much innovation today, and I'd love to get the answer to that question, but I'll give you my answer. I don't know about today, but I know, just so you understand, like I'm second generation Arborist as well. My my father came from a forestry background at age 30. He took a job in arboriculture, um, 1970, because that's where the money was. So I grew up with it as well. But I never wanted to be an Arborist. I ap- actively tried not to be an Arborist. But when I did fall back in the industry, as so many do, I got in right on that cusp of, you know, split tail just coming on Blake's Hitch. So I've seen a lot of the innovation and all those innovations. Like when we went to split tail from stand, you know, before it solved the problem. And then we put that micro pulley hitch beneath it, and that solved us a problem. And everything we did solved a problem, and that was the driver of innovation. And now I see all these things coming out, and they're innovative and they're different, but they seem to be variations on a theme, and they're not solving problems anymore. So I'm wondering the value of it, but I'd love to hear your take on why there, why there seems this huge explosion today. Right. Well, since I go back a little further to when an innovation was uh, mm. learning how to tie a new knot <laughs> or, a, or a hitch that you hadn't used before. There was no innovation in the equipment. Uh, all, of the, all of the innovation came from individuals. Ed Hobbs in, uh, developed and patented the Bright Ann uh, tree saddle. Nobody else had ever had one that had suspenders and a and an articulating leg strap system that he was able to patent he invented the lowering device his inspiration there was he went out on a job and one of his guys they were taking down a pine tree and at about three feet off the ground there'd been a a branch on the pine that came out parallel to the ground you know at a right angle to the trunk it was about five, six inches in diameter, and he'd cut it off and left a stub two feet long. They were taking wraps on it. They were they were taking wraps on that stub, and the light bulb went on in uh, Ed Hobbs's head. And just like Ken Johnson, Ed could s- see the need. He could figure out what he wanted to make, and then he had the skills to make it. He did the welding. And then he went to a foundry to have the spool uh, cast. And um, so all of the innovation had to come from individuals for one reason. The industries out there 
didn't pay any attention to arborists. Uh, We were an unknown quantity, and while they were beginning to pour money and innovation into uh, high-angle rescue and mountaineering and that sort of thing, that's where the figure eights came from. That's where the carabiners come from. Um, That uh, all of a sudden, when the CNC machine came along, that a lot of this stuff is now possible. Before, you could dream it up, but there was no way to make it, especially uh, on an assembly line basis. But Rock Thompson was one of the pioneers in using CNC to make his his special equipment, the the micro-senders and the macro-senders and all those ascenders, the, the, the casing, the shell of it, that's all machined out of a, a billet of aluminum on a CNC machine. And before that, the technology didn't exist. The Gibbs Ascender has been out longer. It, it's the predecessor of, the, of anything from Rock Exotica. And if you look at the, uh, the body of it, it's a piece of sheet uh, stainless steel that was formed it was you know it was it was flat and a uh, a press pushed down on a mold and turned it turned it into a u and put whatever else needed into it they could press it but being able to uh see and see machine things with a computer program that just opened up a world of possibility that we didn't have any access to if we couldn't weld it or forge it mm-hmm. or cast it, we couldn't make it. But now we have this advantage of this technology, which didn't exist before. And that came along at about the same time that uh, uh, there were new innovators coming into, into arborist equipment like myself seeing a micro sender going, you know what, that'd make a great lanyard adjuster, but we need to make it a lanyard adjuster. And then uh, I'll give Toby Sherrill a lot of credit for uh, following along and, and uh, taking things that I was doing, you know, to the next level. Uh, So, but without the manufacturing ability, then, you can dream up all you want, but if it can't be made, you're not going to have it. So I think it's a combination of the idea and the ability coming together so that, that now we've got things that were unimaginable before because they couldn't be made. And so that's why we're seeing just so many, you know, we may have thought of variations to, like, you know, I think of a mechanical hitch as, as a big example. You know, you, you go back to, you know, Hubert Koaleski with ART, you know, the founder of that company, kind of really pioneering the mechanical hitch concept. And, uh, you know, his even I think his designs were CNC as well. And, uh, you know, and now it's just it's an interesting way to look at it. Like the easier it is, you know, maybe 3d printing. I'll even, we'll see another jump, you know, potentially. Well, what I see is I, again, on Facebook just recently, I saw a fellow that had just come from the geezer 
uh, event in Florida the week before. And I think it was an akimbo that he was showing. But there's a cam at the top of the body of this thing that's supposed to be spring-loaded so that it moves easily. And he was showing that his was frozen, that it wouldn't move, which meant that it wouldn't perform the way it should. And he said, well, this thing's three or four years old. It's time to retire it. Mm-hmm. Fact is, it's past it's time. <laughs> um, and that's the that's mm-hmm. the thing with the discipline of, of replacing, you know, equipment. Uh, when I was in Germany, there was uh, a person that, worked for uh, ISA there who told me that uh, she looked forward to the day that we were no longer allowed to use knots in our work, that she wanted to see everything mechanical. And I looked at her and I said, I hope to God I don't live long enough to see that. (laughs) Definitely lose something. Yeah. And we haven't had much to say to each other since, but I just don't believe it. I I think that you you take all this you take all this stuff that this youngest generation is addicted to, and put it in a five gallon bucket, hand them a rope, and say go to work. <laughs> they're they're going to be um, uh, blowing bubbles. <laughs> they won't know what to do. It's. I, I think that anybody that's going to be taught how to climb, I firmly believe that it should be in in uh, a protocol for for training that they learn how to climb. If you want to call it old school, fine, but learn to climb with a rope and Blake's hitch, and even to use a um, uh, a Beckett bend on a wire core flip line instead of having a lanyard adjuster. Because if you boil the work down to the simplest uh, common denominator, a rope and a flip line, uh, then it doesn't, then they can build on that. They can use anything in that five gallon bucket, Yeah. but they can always go back to those original skills. But if you take somebody in off the street and you tell them that the only way they can climb is with a bucket full of stuff and you take that bucket away from them, they're staying on the ground. How do you, uh, how do you uh, integrate that with, you know, because that, that's very much a moving rope type configuration and setup. What we're seeing now is a lot of climbers. I shouldn't say a lot, but the newest generation where they're not even, they don't even know moving rope. You know, they only know the single, or stationary rope technique. Yeah, SRT. stationary rope technique. What, like, like you know, there's literally climbers, and I, I don't know, again, I may be talking about the small percentile, but they don't know how to climb in a moving rope at all. So, and, you know, they argue that, well, I know how to do this. I throw the rope over, I tie it off on the bottom, I make sure it holds good, and away I go. Uh and the, the efficiency that, that it offers them, particularly in ascent. It seems like there's a lot of sacrifice made for being able to get up easier, which, let's face it, has always been a challenge. I mean, let's go straight back to good old-fashioned footlock. And like right to the in its earliest conception, it was to get up there because that's the hard part. 
Coming down's easy. We all know that. <laughs> you can come down pretty fast if you want to. But there's no, you, nobody can get up as, as fast as you can come down. So it's that whole, it's that. Right, exactly. especially That's if you fall. So like, the, it seems to be this marriage between what's easy to work the tree and also what gets you up there easily and efficiently. Um, like, where where do you think the whole SRT movement has, is going to fit in and shake down in the industry? Because it seems like it's here to stay. Well, and I, I don't have a problem with it. I don't personally. I have not climbed on SRT except when Tom Ness took me to uh, Kings Canyon and we climbed a gigantic sequoia, about 25 foot in diameter. And he used a bow and arrow to get a line up into the tree. And then we got a bigger rope in it. And then I used uh, ascenders. And uh, it was the type that, you had to bring your knees up. You had to bring your, your knees up to your chest and then stand up and go up like an inchworm. And that, that was before you've got them now that attach to your ankle and, and that sort of thing. There's certainly a place for both. But when I see some of the trees that these guys are putting three different ropes in and they got a, a mechanical you know, a sender on each one, a mechanical friction thing on, on each one, they're hanging up there like a spider when all they needed was a uh, climbing line on a double rope setup. Uh, spend an awful lot of time yeah. stringing all that stuff. Uh, and I know that's coming from an old guy because my dad never used a rope to climb with. He shinned everything and he used to complain about, you know, by the time that guy gets his rope in the tree, I could be done with it. You know? So by the time that guy gets his SRT set up, I could be in and done. Uh, I just don't think that it's wise for us to turn our back on the classic skills just because they're classic. Uh, I, I, I don't think so. And I also think that nobody should be stuck with one style of climbing. If I was, uh, Younger, I'd want to know more about SRT, but I've seen enough to where I know darn well that I wouldn't be comfortable with the concept. I'm so used to coming down on a, uh, you know, on a on a doubled rope yeah. on a Blake's hitch that when I want to move, I'm going. And the I it must take some getting used to to be working off of a fixed yeah. line, yeah. a single line. It must take some real getting used to if you've been climbing a different way I for 60 years. I certainly have found it myself, you know, uh, and I haven't done as much of it. I, you know, I don't teach as much climbing anymore and so on. Like, Tony, you, you've, you've went, worked right through that transition, mm -hmm. though. Yeah, I think, I think the goal as a trainer is to have your students. There's principles and things and there's methods, right? And the, me the methods are, there's millions of methods, but the principles for all those methods remain relatively small and consistent. And it doesn't matter, you know, the way a tree is loaded, whether it be an SRS system or an MRS system is still load um, and, and how that works. So if you can, if you can start to teach people to understand those principles and then, then they can apply those principles and choose methods, then I think you're getting somewhere. Cause I agree with Don, you know, the, the SRS, it's a tool, it's a tool to be used. But, you know, if you're only, if your only tool is a screwdriver, uh, 
you're going to run out of things you can open up pretty quickly. So you have to have a, a very toolbox. And for me as a climber, you know, coming into it, you know, a little more modern, I guess you say being just, I came in, I think what I consider a great time because it was just new enough that I don't think you'd consider me old school, but I'm just old enough that you certainly wouldn't consider me new school. So I have a blending of both. Um, for for me, it's like, does it solve a problem? Because ultimately you. I'm climbing that tree to prune it. I'm not pruning it because I happen to be climbing around in it. So if it's a tool or technique that helps me get out there and make a proper cut, I'm all for it. All right. If, if it doesn't, then I'm just not interested. If it's just another so piece of gear or another rope, then you know, I'm not interested in that. So if it's helping me do my job, if it's helping me get out there and basically my job is caring for that tree, um, then I'm all for it. If it's just another way to go about it or if it violates the principles, you know, if it's just not structurally sound, I'm, I'm just not interested in it. So, Well, one of the, one of the things that concerns me is, uh, again, tools are great. It's knowing when to use a particular tool in a specific application. And the big shot has certainly allowed people to put ropes consistently up a whole lot higher than they could get with a, with a hand-thrown yeah. throw line. And the problem is you can put a line in the tree a lot higher than you can possibly yeah. judge mm -hmm. how strong yeah. that branch is. And it's John's been proved, Ball has been proving that having two guys pull on the rope does not double load the rope. It's not an accurate indication of what kind of load it can take. And in some cases, it's actually weakened the branch just enough to drop somebody when they get 30 feet up. The other thing is, if you remember, all of the, <clears throat> the standard protocol for, for tying in was you didn't put your rope, you didn't put your rope on the branch you came around the tree so that if that branch broke with any luck you're going to slide down the branch and uh, the trunk until you hit another branch now you might end up on the ground but you didn't do this and with srt that's what they're doing consistently every day because they can't get the rope around the trunk i don't know how many of them go up to where the rope is crotched and then redo it, but there, th this new system is climbing diametrically opposed to what we taught for a hundred years, and it was taught for a darn good reason. It's safer. The other thing that that uh, I see is, well, you know, John's been taking these surveys. I almost forgot one. He asks how many people are using ladders to get in the trees, not to work off of, right. to get in the tree. And again, it's the same percentage of people using Blake's hitches, you know, can be right. most of the room. And we've kind of lost sight of that in the real world. Uh, you know, you just don't see the, the new generation even considering using a 36 uh, foot extension ladder to get into a tree and then you have it removed. You don't right. work off of it. But I can tell you that that's the fastest way to get into a lot of trees. I've got a maple in the backyard here that has so many branches that trying to um, trying to get a throw line over a really good branch, 
you're going to take a lot of throws. Throw that 36-foot ladder up there, and you're in the tree. You can tie in, and from that point on, you can move around. And I, I think that there are times when that ladder is a tool that is the best choice, and it's not being recognized uh, necessarily by enough people. Uh, we did uh, an awful lot of entry using a um, using a ladder, and even uh, after I learned how to footlock, and the, the the tree trimmer's jamboree is what saved the footlock, I think, from extinction. That brought it back, and I did a lot of footlocking, uh, especially uh, in the redwoods and uh, uh, firs, where I. One time I got a line on the first branch was 80 feet up. I foot locked up 80 feet. And then what I did was I took my throat, my flip line, threw that around the branch and clipped in. So I wasn't going to fall while I'm trying to belly over the branch because I didn't have anything else to, uh, you know, hold on to. But that's uh, still a really valid tool that uh, I think is being forgotten. Yeah, yeah. Or the the technique has been variated to use, you know, equipment that maybe isn't as hard on the joints. You know, that's one of the things you hear about, particularly with traditional footlock. It definitely takes a toll on the hips and knees and ankles. <laughs> yeah, we hear that all the time, but nobody ever backs it up with any research, right? Like, uh, you know, it, it, it uh, you know, it's like when you think about it for a footlocking, like how often during the, what is the percentage of your climb that you're actually footlocking? All right. It's just now if you're footlocking 3000 feet a day, you're probably going to have some ergonomic issues. No doubt about it. Right. But if you walk <laughs> that far, you're going to have ergonomic yeah. issues. So I think sometimes these things get um, arguments are made that aren't based on any type of, of evidence or science. It's like, well, we have to use ascenders to do this, this type of ascent because footlocking is bad because the asymmetrical rotation of your hips. No one's ever quite proved that. Yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah, if yeah, you're going to footlock 3000 feet, <laughs> yes. But I mean, think, you know, from a climbing standpoint, if you climb vertically, you know, up and down, working a tree, say 700 feet a day, how much of that's a footlock, you know, 60, 70 feet of it. Uh, it's not, it's, it's all, it's all in dose. Right. But Don, I did wanted to know as a man that has innovated things and has brought products into the industry, right. For arboriculture to improve things. Where do you think like the, if you had to invent something today, like the XYZ climbing device, and it's the best thing ever, how would you go about it today? Because there seems to be this influx of, you know, D- DIY, do-it-yourself tools coming in. And I'm, do- I'm not agreeing with the way they're bringing it to the industry, the way they're doing it. I would be curious, if you were going to innovate something today, how would you do it? That's a good question. Um I, th- I suppose I'd have to look back at what caused me to innovate something 50 years ago. And it was rec- recognizing a need or an opportunity to uh, uh, make things better. I started innovating equipment for my own tree company and other people saw it and they said, man, that's cool. I'd like one too. And then uh, some of the things we were doing with the lowering device were such that it was rigging of a type that they had no experience with. So they wanted me to bring a lowering device out to them and show them how to use it. So then all of a sudden we're doing rigging workshops. It was all by, by demand. 
I didn't create the need. I responded to the to the need or uh, to the request. So I was innovating equipment at the same time I was traveling around the world showing stuff off purely on request. Um, the uh, I was the first one to make fiberglass pruning tools popular. I thought it was better than an aluminum pole. And the way that came about was in 1975, I went to Western Chapter Meeting in uh, Palm Springs, and there was a fellow there. He was Dick Alvarez's brother-in-law, named Charlie. No, it was his. It was his brother. It was Charlie Alvarez. That was Dick's brother, and he had put together Arbor Supply, so he was the supply side of Arbor Tree Surgery, and he was selling. Marvin pruner heads on a fiberglass pole and the fiberglass pole was actually a pole vaulting pole. It was lighter than anything I'd seen before. And I had never seen a Marvin head. What was standard on the West coast from one end to the other right. was the Porter pruner. And we didn't like them. So we didn't use them. Uh, we had them on the truck, but it was like, Oh God, we got to use the Porter. It was heavy and it didn't make that clean a cut. But when I saw the uh, the Marvin pruner on a fiberglass pole, I was the Eskimo that saw a refrigerator for the first time. I said, man, this is, this is cool. So I asked him how much they were, and he said they were, I think, 50 bucks. But if I buy 10 of them, uh, he'd make me a dealer. I said, well, hell, I only need one, but I'll take 10 to save a few bucks. So so when they when he dropped them off, as coincidence would be that night uh, we were going to a California Arbor Association dinner and I tied one to the side of my dad's car and took it into the, it was a dinner meeting and I took it into the dinner meeting and I showed it around. I sold 20 of them that night and the guys are saying, are you going to get into the selling equipment? That'd be great. I need a hundred lags. Another guy wanted five gallons of tree paint. Yeah. The Shigo hadn't been out there yet and uh somebody else wanted a 600 foot coil of rope and i said well hold it hold it i don't even know if i can get this stuff uh but give me a little time and i'll get back with you if i can and the the opportunity in northern california was absolutely wide open everybody that i called uh wanted to do business with me because they didn't have anybody doing much in the bay area except Coomerling, he was reluctant. He says, I don't know if I want to supply a competitor. And I said, well, that's your decision, but all I want to do is buy tree paint pots because <laughs> Coomerling made okay, the best yeah. tree paint pots back then. And, and it went, it went from there. But you to get back to your original question. There's so much, there's, there's, so much that has been done now, I'd have to really get into it to sift through and see if there's some loopholes or some gaps that haven't been addressed. I'll tell you what really impresses me is the the newest generation of electric chainsaws. Mm -hmm. I bought the Husky I540T, and I am absolutely impressed with it. I waited until 
they'd been through enough evolution to where I'm really in favor of that saw. And I've told people, and I've said, look, I don't get paid to sell Husks Varnish products. I don't get a commission on anything. I'm just telling you that from my experience, I think this is a great saw. And climbing with it, it made me aware of things I hadn't even thought about. If you're tied in in an awkward position and you've got a, a saw that's been a little cranky and you're trying to pull start it and it won't go, you just wear yourself out. But to turn it on and just pull that trigger and have it cutting, that's beautiful. The other thing is I stopped burning my hip <laughs> on the muffler. I think the best climbing saw, one of the best in history, especially in its era, was the Poland the Poland 25, but the muffler sits proud of the, of the body of the saw. And it seemed like it was always turning. So at, as soon as the saw got hot, it turned to where the muffler was branding <laughs> your, your leg. Some of my, one of my climbers had a leather patch sewn to every one of his pants, right where the muffler would, would, would ride on him. So it didn't bother him anymore. Right. He solved the problem. Um, so you don't have the muffler problem. I never was bothered too much by gasoline fumes, but uh, you don't have them anymore. And they developed a chain, I think they call it the nano chain, specifically for that saw. It's narrower, which means a smaller curve. That saw cuts smoother and holds an edge longer than any chain I have ever worked with. And I go all the way back to... Yeah. really old home lights. So I think right now, I think that's the best climbing saw out there. And the balance is perfect. It's right on the trigger, but I don't for a minute use a saw one-handed. That's not how I judge them, right. but I do like the balance because five years ago, uh, well, it's been more than that now coming up on nine at the, 2013 Expo, that was the 75th anniversary of the National Arborist Association, and I worked on putting a museum thing together, but still had their first generation of electric climbing saw, and it was so back heavy that you literally had to force the saw down to get it to cut. Its natural, its natural balance was like this and you had to literally force the, the bar down to the wood and I said I don't, I don't forget it I don't care if it even cuts good I didn't like the balance yeah. so they've come a long so, way and the battery's about the same as yeah, a tank of gas it's quite astonishing they are uh, an amazing innovation um, like I said earlier when we started Don I think that there's no question uh, we're, we need to schedule you for another chat uh no this is the, our longest podcast so far and uh there's no reason that we have to stop i don't want to necessarily say i'm doing that but i i want to at least capture one last thing and you mentioned about the one-handing that you wouldn't for one minute judge us on it's one-handed use you know it's it's you know as trainers obviously it's pretty it's a pet peeve or i think it's more than that it's a major we think it's a major safety concern and certainly you know what, what you hear out there 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the way you do it in training. But then there's, you know, when you get in the real world, here's how it's done. And like, how do you address that with people? How, how, is there a way that you dispel that? Or how do you explain why it just isn't right to one hand a saw? Like safety, What what's your, how do you explain that or address that? Well, I've seen okay. too much. I've seen too much. Um, when if you're if you're working with one hand, the the temptation then is to start cutting above your shoulders, above your head. And I don't care how strong you are, if the saw kicks back, you can't stop it. It's coming back at you. And I know too many people that look like they were in a bar fight with a broken bottle. And I didn't know. I don't know the man, but one of my climbers worked with this fellow who had a, and th- this one, I don't think he was using it one-handed, but the saw, no, he was. The saw kicked back and plunged board his chest. It went right through his ribs, and it just barely missed his heart. And he said he was in the ambulance, and he heard the EMS saying, we're losing him. And they came that close. They came that close. The other thing is the temptation. Uh, you're you're up there in that scenario I told you about. You're up 60 feet and eight inches of wood, and you got your GoPro <laughs> on your head, and you're you're cutting with here, and you're reaching over yeah. the bar to push that piece over. It's just now you're now you're in position for it yeah. to kick back, and I don't care if you've been doing it for 20 years and never had an incident. What are you going to do yeah. when it does happen? Exactly. Uh, it you know if if you can train people just to not even get in the habit and i made that comment on purpose because i've had to detox myself from the temptation because there were times when it just seemed to make sense uh i'm out on the end of a limb and i want to cut something out beyond me so i'm holding on with my left hand to my Blake's hitch and I lean out and I make a right angle cut. Well, I'm not, I've never been concerned about a kickback. If it kicks back, it's not going to hit me. And I used to use that as an argument for not completely banning one handed use. But if you get somebody in the habit of that, then they'll start to backslide a little bit. So, well, that's okay. Then I can do it for this reason or that reason. And we've, we've got to take a stand somewhere and uh, uh, it's it's important uh, when the Z133 committee tackled the no one-handed use uh, uh, Mark Chisholm's father uh, his hair was on fire and he, he, he denounced the concept he said we we won't be able to get any work done. And since then he is, he is mellowed on it, but something like that was challenging the older guys. And some of them just don't want to change. When Shigo said, you don't have to paint cuts. The older guys wanted to dip him in tree paint and, and feather him up and haul him out of town because they've been painting yeah. cuts for so long that it was, it was, 
blasphemy to say that you didn't have to paint. Yeah. yeah. And then there was the younger generation, like saying, couldn't 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 wait to stop carrying around buckets of tar. Oh well, when when Shigo told us he came to California in 1976, he said, "You don't have to paint." And I went back to my dad, who had been behind painting his entire career to that point, was climbing up on 50 years. And the California Arborist Association standard, and I quote, was all cuts that cannot be covered with a silver dollar. That was in the standard. A silver dollar had to be painted. And that's what we had stuck to. But I told him, I said, this guy Shigo says we don't have to paint. I said, what do you think? And he said, he says, I've always known that it was better to make a good cut than it was to paint a bad one. He said, if you can sell the clients on it, I don't have an objection. Now, that's pretty darn progressive for a guy that was in his 70s and had been painting all his life. And he was rare. Uh, but um, I first few clients, I said, we would you allow, would you be willing to participate in a scientific experiment? We're working with this fellow, Alex Shigo, who is studying the compartmentalization of decay in trees. And he's been proving this theory that we don't have to paint cuts. You're used to us painting cuts. Would you object to us not painting this time around? Nobody ever objected. They said, look, you're the expert. You do what's right. So, I saved so many genes at that point. <laughs> excellent, excellent. If uh, you want to, I, I, I'm, I've enjoyed this immensely, and I'd be more than happy to visit with you at any time. I want to okay. leave you with a quote uh, that now there's a very famous, popular Irish toast. It says, may you dance as if no one's watching, sing as if no one's listening, and live every day as if it's your last. And I'll drink <laughs> to that. But I would rather say, may you work safely, even when no one is watching, and live every day so that it won't be your last. Amen. Oh, man, that's a good one. Yeah, work as if. Yeah, work as if no one is watching. May you work as it, yeah, that's I'll good. send that to that's you. Good. That's a good modification. Well, uh, I want to thank you, mm -hmm. Don, and uh, you know the our uh, collective knowledge, and you know you 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 represent you double Tony and I in that together. I think, and uh, there's more we can talk about, and I I I, I certainly would. Uh, relish another opportunity to 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 just carry on and continue the discussion so um we'll be in touch for sure and i look forward to our next visit okay. absolutely you got a deal and uh i was honored when you called me and said that in talking to uh, uh norm hall and 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 other people my name kept coming up as one of their yes, earliest inspirations i was honored by that <laughs>